0: Well, if you want to find the book of Luke in your Bibles a while, Luke chapter 12. Uh, we've been, and if you're new today, we, we've been in a, a series looking at the book of Luke really all year. We've taken several breaks, and uh, we're basically halfway through the book. Um, next Sunday, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. Uh, but this Sunday and next Sunday, the, the messages are, are linked Um, This Sunday, Bad News. Next Sunday, we're going to talk, uh, the title is simply, Good News. And uh, as you know, if you've been here any length of time, you know I teach that I I don't think we grasp that good news is good news, the good news is good news, unless we realize what the bad news is. Um, And we're going to talk about our Savior, Jesus, being both uh, prosecutor and defender, prosecutor today. If you've been following the news, uh, you know that there was a, a, a decision that was made in the Supreme Court five years ago about sentencing um, for juvenile offenders. Up to that time, um, there, was, there, was a, a, there were laws that restricted what sentencing could be made with juvenile offenders for everything except murder. That changed in 2012, and now even, even juvenile murders are, are, all of their cases are being re-looked at. And so you've watched the papers, you've seen a lot of um, famous murder cases that are coming uh, back into the courts. And one that was uh, looked at recently was uh, Gregory Salbir. Uh Greg has the distinction of being the, as far as I understand, he's the oldest um, juvenile or he served the, uh, the longest prison sentence of any juvenile offender in Pennsylvania or he's right now the, the longest one he's been in prison 41 years he's 56 years old he killed his mother when he was 14 years old and so a couple of months ago his case came up before the courts and um, and probably he is going to be paroled and uh, probably in the next six months or something uh, so when the case is brought back to the court um, you have prosecutor and defender. The prosecutor was Travis Anderson. The defender was David Blank. Now, if, if you understand how the court system works, if you've ever, ever been in court, you've been one of the accused, or you've been a, on a jury, uh, you know you have basically two sides. So you have this side that's making the accusation, that's the prosecution. You have the side that's uh, defending against the accusation, that's the defense. You have a prosecuting attorney, and you have a defense attorney. Now, Sometimes a lawyer who uh, starts out as a prosecutor will become a defense attorney later on in his or her career, and that 's usually a, uh, a very desirable thing for a law firm to have some ex prosecutors in their firm, and they usually advertise it. you know we have this this person or these people that are ex prosecuting attorneys, and the reason that 's so desirable is because they know how the prosecution works they know how the Uh, The deals are made. They know where prosecution is going to push and where they're going to draw back. They they know the other side of the case. And we're going to be talking about Jesus as both prosecutor and defender today. Talking about him as a prosecutor next week, as a defender. Now you know even someone who's um, who's in court and they're being charged with something and being accused of something. Um, they have an appreciation of the attorney that's with them based on how dangerous it is for them. Is, is there ample evidence against them, so forth and so on. This is, this is true of any aspect of life. We, we see something as valuable based on where we're at, what life is like for us. So let's just say, for example, that somebody's going to give you $100, no, uh, no reason, they just like you. Maybe you're especially handsome or beautiful or, I don't know, $100 coming to you. Now, if you have a portfolio of $6 million and you have in your bank account $250,000 liquid cash that you can easily get, get to, and somebody gives you $100, it's not really all that big of a deal. It just does, it doesn't hit you. But if you're broke, $100 is a very big deal deal, right? Let's say some uh, college, some university is going to offer you an honorary doctorate degree. Now, if you happen to have an earned doctorate from a prestigious institution like Harvard or Yale or uh, one of the big schools like that, it doesn't mean so much to you. I already have an earned doctorate. This one's a fake one. On the other hand, if you never went through high school, This gives you like instant credibility, and it's a very, very, very big deal. And so what we want to do today is is talk about the the difficult stuff, the bad news that makes the good news such good news. And we're going to need you to buckle up this morning because we're going to talk about hell, and that's a very difficult subject to talk about. So Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 4 and 5, and if you were here last week, you remember the context. Jesus has a crowd around him, literally thousands of people, but before he speaks to them, he turns to his 12 disciples, and he has a a few special things to say to them first. So he's talking to the 12 in what we're about to read. Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that, but I'll tell you whom to fear Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Let's pray together. Father God, um, maker of heaven and earth, ruler of the cosmos, the one who fashioned every star, flung it into the universe, If there's a name for them, you know them all. You know how many years it's existed. You know how many years it has yet to exist before it flames out. You know the strength of its brightness or the weakness of its brightness. The one who created all things on this planet and at the end of creation week scooped dirt up off the land and made a man out of it extracted a rib from him and made a woman out of it who gave man and woman just one simple rule to keep and they didn't. And instead of wiping them out and starting over, you fashioned a plan of mercy and grace and hope for sinners like me. We worship worship you this morning and praise your holy name for who you are, what you do. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would both speak to us, teach us this morning, as well as guard our hearts against the enemy who hates us, hates you, hates your agenda, hates your plan, hates your purposes. Pray that you would muzzle him, uh, that you would bind him, And instead, that you would cut the Holy Spirit loose among us for your glory, for our good. And I pray especially this morning for people that uh, don't know Christ that this would be a day in which they come to understand at least a little bit of the greatness of the good news as they hear about the bad news. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has a warning in these couple of sentences for his followers. Did I say warning? Not a warning. He has a word of encouragement for his followers, but he has a word of warning for those who are not his followers. And the word of encouragement to his followers is don't fear dangerous people in this life. Don't fear dangerous people in this life, people that you think might be a threat to you, what they could do to you, don't worry about them. Don't lose any sleep over them. The worst that they could possibly do is kill you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear somebody say, t- eh, don't worry about somebody killing you, not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. But this is being said by someone who knows that within a relatively short amount of time, he is going to die a very, very violent death. And this is being said to 12 men, one of whom is going to take his own life, another is going to die of old age, but the remaining 10 will die very violent deaths in the decades ahead. Some of them by crucifixion, just like Jesus. And so he is not casual or cavalier about the danger and the agony of facing a violent death. Uh, I think that Jesus would say, if he's standing here this morning saying, look, I I get it. That You stand in front of the firing squad, you stand in front of the hangman with his noose, that there's going to be anxiety and fear. Elijah, when he after his great victory in Mount Carmel. And if you remember the story, there were two altars stacked with wood, sacrifices on each, and it was a competition. Is your God the real God or is my God the real God? And so over here's the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them. They're praying and calling out to their God. Nothing's happening. And over here's Elijah, and he's praying, calling out to his God. And, of course, fire falls from heaven. Uh, from uh, Yahweh lands on the sacrifice burns up the sacrifice the wood the stones of the altar the dust around the altar and the trenches of water that have been dug around the altar God destroys it all great victory for Elijah the people so impressed yeah this must be the true God that they obeyed his instruction that they kill all the prophets of Baal and King Ahab whose prophets they were ran home with his tail between his legs but when he got home he told his wife jezebel about what happened and she was livid and she put out a contract on elijah and he ran for his life terrified scared to death about dying and you say well he's just a lowly prophet what about jesus you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying to the Father, and he's, he's sweating, not like you and I, so he's sweat drops of blood. He's in great agony. He says to his Father, if there's another way for us to execute your, your plan, let's go for that. He, he's aware that he's about to take upon himself the sins of the world, and that spiritual agony is, must have been horrific. We can only imagine. But he also knows what his his death is going to look like. Flogging, not just with a rawhide whip, but bits of metal embedded in those leather straps. Uh, uh, Crown of thorns on his head. And when we say thorns, my rose has produced maybe quarter inch to three eighth inch thorns. These are Jerusalem thorns. They're three inches to six inches long, pressed down into his scalp. Before all that happened, the, the soldiers hit him in the face. Bible says he was disfigured, and then they took him out and crucified him. If there's another way, this doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I don't think Jesus is saying there's not going to be fear when you face that kind of death, but he's saying don't fear the people that can do that to you. Don't fear. Don't fear them. Let me have you look at a verse in John chapter seven, verse thirteen. By the way, do you know the most oft repeated command in the entire Bible? Does anybody know what it is? It's a negative command. Do not. anybody? 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 Fear. Fear. Thank you. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Sometimes the reason for that is given for I am with you. Hebrews. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Don't be afraid. Most often repeated command, John chapter seven verse thirteen. <clears throat> Background here is Jesus is preaching uh, in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, and there are some people in the crowd that like him, and some people that don't. There are some friends, and there are some enemies. Here's what it says about his friends, verse thirteen, John seven thirteen. <clears throat> but no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public for they were what afraid they were afraid of getting into trouble with the Jewish leaders they might be imprisoned they might be cast out of the synagogue they might be killed probably just get kicked out of the synagogue just make trouble for themselves or family and Jesus said don't do not fear these people don't fear what's going to happen to you by the way i think there are some of you here that are going to live long enough to see persecution come to these shores. Maybe not to the extent of a place like China or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, but we're going, see, we're going to see some persecution. Some of you at least are going to live long enough to see that, I think. And do you remember what Jesus says about when you get in trouble for following me? You're going to be brought before kings and before princes and before governors. And when you do, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because it will be given to you by the Holy Spirit at that moment. And and this is what's true about the dangers that we might face from other people. God's going to give you the grace and the mercy that you need at the moment. He's not going to give it to you ahead of time. I've been deeply interested in the persecuted church for many years. I've read a lot of stories and books about what some of our brothers and sisters have gone through on the other sides of the world and what i a, a mistake i often make when i re- read a story and i th- somebody's gone through uh, whether they've been killed or whether they've gone to jail or whether they've been kicked out of the family or kicked out of a village i always wrestle with could i do that which is a bad idea because you know you think at the moment i don't think i could do it now well i don't need the grace right now god's going to give me the grace When I need it, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians have died for their faith in the last 2,000 years. There's no faith on the planet that has suffered so much. And they've all done it, not on their own strength, but on the power of God. You know, I think what Jesus is trying to, to say, maybe to us who aren't facing dying necessarily today, is that those who don't fear dying don't fear trying to serve me. I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tongue-tied when I want to talk about Jesus. Sometimes when I'm, I'm, I'm pressed in a situation where I have to either stand for Christ or stand down for Christ, I, I stand down. you ever do that? I shared a story years ago when I was in sales where I had to go back to... Um, a client and tell them they had kind of set me up and done something for me in the hopes that I would do something um, illegal for them. And uh, when push came to shove and I found out some things were going on behind the scenes, I went to him and I said, I can't do what you want me to do. The problem was there was an earlier place in time where I should have said that. Now I wasn't afraid this guy was going to kill me, though he was pretty big, um, a lot bigger than me anyway. But I wasn't afraid he was going to kill me. I was just afraid that maybe I was going to lose the job, the 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 contract. I was afraid what he would say to other people about me and so forth. Joel and Julie Bales are uh, were members of this church. They moved away six months ago, uh, so Joel could take a job in Texas. And after about three months on the job, uh, there was a uh, his supervisor, his manager, was doing some shady things. And Joel went to his boss about that, and they acknowledged that there were problems there, and they were hoping that Joel could make sure that things went right. That didn't go like that. And when his boss found out what he had done, he started to kind of stack the deck, and in short order, he was fired. He's still without a job. Last three months. Uh, you can pray for Joel tomorrow. He has a, uh, an interview tomorrow. It's a second interview with a company. It's going to be an all day, all-day interview, and they're praying that this will open up a door for them. But Joel did what Jesus would wanted him to do, regardless of what the cost is. Those who don't fear dying, don't fear trying to serve Christ. So this, is the, this is the word of encouragement that Jesus gives his followers. Here's the word of warning that he gives those who are not yet his followers. Do fear the dangerous God of the next life. Do fear the dangerous God of the next life. Do you remember what Jesus said? The one to fear, I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. A lot of people don't want to think that God throws anybody into hell. There are even Christians that say, God doesn't throw anybody into hell. You kind of take yourself. Well, there's some truth to that. But I don't know how to get around what Jesus says. Fear him who has the power to throw you, not only kill you, but throw you into hell. You see, the, the Bible says that we start with a pre-existing condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, says that we are by nature objects of God's wrath, that we were enemies of God. We're like this because we're broken sinners. And the problem is, um, when we think about Jesus, and sometimes as he's being portrayed today, he's, he's only nice. You know what I'm saying? He's only nice. He wraps his arms around you when you're having a bad day, he encourages you, he, he provides for you when, when you don't have enough money. He gives you a friend when you move into a new area area and you don't have a friend. And he can and will do all of those things, but it's only half the story. Let me have you look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a minute. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 7. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us. When the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, this is when this is going to happen, God's going to provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. I, I, let, let me read that again. This is, this is Jesus, the one who offered his life for you on an old rugged cross. He will come with his mighty angels. In other words, this is his second coming. In flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished, verse 9, they will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Now, I don't know why. And this is not typical of me. But I have felt God pressing me this week to press you if you don't know Christ. I typically, because uh, I believe the Spirit works in a person's life, drawing them. The scripture talks about the Spirit drawing, uh, drawing us to Christ. And so I don't, I don't ever want to be in a place where I'm circumventing the Spirit or trying to go ahead of Him. But I felt constrained this week to press you, if you are not follower of Jesus, to do something about that today. And maybe it's because my time is short, but maybe it's because yours is short. And isn't it true that just by nature, I, I, that's for many of us, maybe I'll put it this way, by nature we're procrastinators. And we just think if we just ignore something or just let it go a little longer, it's not going to be all that big a deal. Or if you're like me, you figure it'll work itself out given enough time. I've got uh, some cabinets to make yet for my office across the street. So uh, last summer, when it was nice and warm in my shop, uh, I cut out the parts for those cabinets. So they're sitting there. They've been sitting there for five, six months untouched. And the reason for that is two of those parts I I made a boo-boo on, and I have to fix it now. And it's going to take some extra machining to fix it and some kind of thinking through I do this to compensate for it and so forth. And even if you sat me down and said, Keith, do you really believe that if you just let those things go out there on their own, they'll fix themselves, I would say, no, I don't believe that for a minute. I act like it. It, it, Maybe in January or February, even better, April, when it's warmer in my shop, I go out there and, it's all ready to go i can put them all together in short order i don't know it's not true but i act like it's true and i wonder about some of you acting like you have yet forever on tuesday evening uh, my wife and i had um a couple of sisters that lived next to us uh, They've been there for a while. We haven't really sat down with them, got to know them. We wave, you know, how it goes. Neighbors move, move into the neighborhood, and you just kind of, again, neglect, wait and wait and wait. So we finally had them over for dinner Tuesday night, got to know them, what they do, where they work, their families. <clears throat> and the one woman works for her, um, her brother who's got a local business. And the next day, they were there Tuesday night. next day, he had a massive heart attack, still in a coma, from what I understand. He was at work the day before. Some of you know about this horrible accident that took place right out in front of our church building on Route 30 two weeks ago. Route 30 closed down for, I think, about eight, nine hours between Belmont and the next road. tractor trailer sitting at Belmont heading uh, west toward Lancaster, a car uh, at the traffic light, a car right behind the tractor trailer. And behind the car comes a box truck. Never hit never hit his brakes. I don't know whether he was looking at a cell phone, fell asleep, um, distracted, whatever. Boom, back of that car. Somebody told me the car is about this wide when it was all said and done. for whatever it's worth. God is pressing you this morning and pressing me to press you because the judgment that is coming is sure. There's no possibility or that maybe God's going to change his mind. Maybe he'll dial it back. This is what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, that's the word repent. Repent means to um, two things. To, one, change my mind about my love affair with sin and turn and go the other direction. Doesn't mean you never sin. That's not the point. I'm changing my mind about how I love my sin. Because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger word is literally wrath for a day of wrath is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed it is for sure coming and the judgment that God is going to exert on those who do not trust have not trusted Jesus Christ is hell there's a word you don't hear a lot anymore in church we hear it on the streets we hear it on the job site, we hear it in the office, we hear it in school, but not so much in the church anymore. It's been interesting to me to watch the, um, the growing silence in the church in the last probably 15 years on the matter of hell. And it's understandable, isn't it? The uh, Bible doesn't paint a very pretty picture of hell. I don't, I don't know what's metaphor and what's literal. I just know that the only thing the Bible writers had to work with are things that we can understand and connect to here with this life and with this body. We're going to have new lives and new bodies in the next life. So how it looks, may, these may simply be word pictures. But it speaks about fire. It speaks about darkness. The Bible does. It speaks about separation from God. It speaks about crying. It speaks about grinding your teeth because the agony is so great. I have this thing when I'm hurting. If I'm really hurting bad to keep from letting anybody know that, I bite this, this fatty spot between my second and third knuckle and my index finger. Does anybody else do that? I mean, anybody didn't think so. Works for me. You should try it sometime. The picture there is great and extreme agony. And, and instinctively, we recoil a, a, a away from it, thinking if if hell does exist to punish people, then how can God be a good God? How can we hear that God's a loving God? How can he be a loving God if he's prepared this place? Not, not just a place that is going to be maybe three, four years long, but forever. At least it has to be if Jesus says in, Uh, Matthew chapter 25, I think, that both heaven and hell are forever. He uses the same word for each. And the reaction that some people have is that if God is going to judge people for uh, sins that only last a limited period of time, how can he be just and then punish them for all eternity? So, for example, <clears throat> let's say we have a, a man here before us. Um, he's, he's committed adultery. And it's not just a once or twice deal. This guy is a professional, uh, a serial adulterer. And in his lifetime, he has slept with five, uh, not 500 other women, uh, uh, but 500 other times he slept with a woman that's not his wife. And let's say it takes 30 to 60 minutes each time. So that's 500 hours of that sin. But that's three weeks. Hell is forever? That doesn't seem right. Is it this some sort of divine overreaction to something that's not that big of a deal? C.S. Lewis said, There is no doctrine hell. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. He believed in hell. He just didn't like it. And I used to be right where he was at not that long ago. Clark Pinnock, a theologian just passed away about seven years ago, was uh, very prominent in the 80s and 90s. And I watched his career with interest because it seemed like about every two, three years, he would write a book... Um, articulating a new uh, a Bible teaching that he now newly rejected. And one of those over the years was hell. And he wrote this to people like me who believe the Bible says that there is a hell. He said, how can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. In other words, Pinnock would say, it doesn't matter how, how bad a person's sin is, to, to judge them this way is, it's, it far exceeds what is reasonable. And I say I used to be of a mindset like Lewis, but for two things, and that is that I think as human beings, we fail to appreciate holy, and we fail to appreciate sin from God's vantage point. And you might say, well, I don't even understand understand what holy is. What, What does that mean? And of course, the Bible says that God is holy, but it says other things are holy as well. Our typical thought is that holy means moral perfection, righteousness, goodness. And there is an element of that in the word holiness, but it's not limited to that. For example, the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple were sprinkled with blood and they became holy a a chest can't be morally perfect an altar of incense can't have any righteousness in of itself the key thing that holiness says about something or someone is that he she it set apart consecrated for a special purpose Teacher taught me about 30 years ago when they were teaching on holiness that it means especially other. The word other describes something or someone that's holy. And and what a more perfect word for God than other. Say, yeah, I'm made in the image. You're made in the image and likeness of God. We're made in his image. But we are distinct from him. Even before Adam and Eve sinned, they were distinct. From him, you remember what the uh, devil tempted them with? If you eat this piece of fruit, you'll become like God. We do not grasp the radical nature of what it means to be a holy God, nor do we typically grasp the nature of sin, which is an offense to a holy God that's almost unfathomable to us. Well, it is unfathomable to us. Because you and I judge each other based on Um, if you, we judge each other's goodness based on whether it's a better goodness or a worse goodness than ours. So I think you're a good person as long as you meet my standards of righteousness or better. I think you're a bad person if you are, are lower than my standard of righteousness. And this is why the, the, um, perception of other people's goodness is, is such a moving target, target. I've shared with you before the, the day that God really began to break through my heart with the glory of the gospel was the day that I realized that I was exactly, exactly in God's eyes like this pedophile in death row. Exactly. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're, we're all in the same boat. doesn't matter how bad our sin is, how mild our sin is. Because God is holy, the smallest sin is it deep, deep offense to him. Doesn't matter whether you're a big liar or a little white liar. It doesn't matter whether you committed armed robbery and killed somebody in the process of that burglary or if you took a pencil home from work and never took it back. It it doesn't matter if you don't um, love your spouse quite like you should or if you're sleeping around on him or her. It doesn't matter if you um, are really mean to the person that lives next door to you or up the street from you or if you simply don't love them as yourself. It doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't matter whether you have uh, dropped an F-bomb on God or you simply haven't loved him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. James 2.10 says if we have, if we've, uh, kept the entire law of God, but we've stumbled in one point. In his eyes we are guilty of it all. And all sin must be judged. Now that's all bad news. We need to get to the good news even today before next week. Let me say this. What shows the magnitude of God's love is not an unoccupied hell, but an occupied cross. In other words, there are Christians who increasingly have a, a problem with the idea of hell because it just doesn't, doesn't seem to be compatible with the idea of uh, God's love. As I was talking with somebody after their early service, um, uh, she was saying, you know, th- this, is, this is a problem I've watched. Uh, they had left another church. It said uh, grace and mercy were still being taught, love of God still being taught, but we're missing the whole reason that God needs to show grace and mercy and love. So here's the good news. What shows the magnitude of God's love is not an unoccupied hell, but an occupied cross. And let me close with a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, Um, verses 9 and 10. And we'll stop then. God showed how much he loved us. God showed how much he loved us. How would you finish that sentence if you didn't know what else was coming? God showed how much he loved us by I never get sick again. Uh, God shows how much he loves us by me always having enough money for my needs and a lot of my wants. God shows how much he loves me by never letting a loved one of mine die again. No, this is what he says. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And in other words, he he took the initiative. He loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The cross reveals the breadth and the depth and the width and the height of God's love like nothing else can. You say, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have a hell out there for me. No, if God really loved you, he would send his one and only son for you, and he did. And he's available to you, and he wants you to come in. as we said, repent and then trust Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him to forgive you of your sin. You can never stop being bad enough or start being good enough to be acceptable to a holy God. His son Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could go to the cross and die a perfect death to stand in your stead so that all you need to do is put faith in him. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, but because Jesus died on a cross, there is forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord. For Bethlehem, for Calvary, for Joseph's empty tomb, and for the promise that nobody can do anything to us here on this planet Earth beyond kill us. But there is something that comes after death. And that, what happens there, depends on what we have done about Jesus. And I do pray today for whoever or the multiple people that you might have had in mind for me to press about today being the day of their salvation, today being the day they say, yes, I'm ready to repent of my sin, turn and go the other direction, and put my faith not in my goodness but in Christ's goodness to forgive me, that I instantly become a child of God, a son or daughter of his, I'm instantly made right with someone that I was at war with before, that I instantly receive the Holy Spirit and have supernatural power to live a life pleasing to God, to speak on his behalf, uh, to fight the the remaining part of my life against sin. I have all that in me. And I pray for those people this morning, that they wouldn't put it off. They wouldn't say, well, I'll wait till the football game's over and then I'll, I'll take care of business or maybe see how I feel later tonight. If the Spirit is prompting them this morning to get right with you and be reconciled with you, I pray that you would give them the courage to do it. In Jesus' name.